the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Well, we have a lot of impeachment news to cover, a lot of developments in the last 24 hours on the impeachment front, starting with Nancy Pelosi finally naming her seven House impeachment managers and uh, the collection of them after the uh, formal signing ceremony with the commemorative pens and the pomp and the circumstance, then the Our Lady of Guadalupe procession over to the Senate with the articles of impeachment and uh, a history-making day to watch and listen to House Speaker Pelosi present this. Then the question becomes now, what does the Senate do as uh, the senators are sworn in as jurors today? And there are a couple of different options, particularly against the backdrop of two other developments. One is the interview from uh, Giuliani associate Lev Parnas, who is under federal indictment for campaign finance violations. He sat down with Rachel Maddow and Anderson Cooper. Isn't the timing interesting? Isn't the choice of the interviewers interesting? And uh, suggested that uh, Trump knew what Giuliani and his team, which would include Parnas, were, were, uh, what they were doing over in Ukraine. Well, since he dispatched them to Ukraine, I'm not sure that's a particularly groundbreaking statement. In addition to that, Parnas didn't really speak to anything that was a colorable violation of the law. He just spoke to the political intrigue, I think. Uh, Attorney General Barr knew what was going on. I think Michael Bolton was opposed to, excuse me, John Bolton. Uh, I think John Bolton was opposed to what was going on. Uh, I think that John Bolton should testify. What Parnas is doing clearly is trying to leverage himself as a witness in the impeachment to try to cut a deal or get some consideration from the federal criminal campaign finance related charges he faces in the Southern District of New York. But in addition to that, this morning you have the Government Accountability Office uh, coming out with a statement that the Trump administration violated the law. They did not have the legal authority to hold the Ukrainian security assistance uh, that uh, uh, that they did. Uh, GAO writing, in their opinion, faithful execution of the law does not permit the president to substitute his own policy priorities for those that Congress has enacted into law. And, of course, the Parnas interview last night, bombshell, and now this GAO opinion, bombshell. Now, uh, the GAO is not a court of law. It's not a law enforcement agency. Uh, it's an administrative body, and it's an administrative body whose opinion on this matter is being disputed by the Office of Management and Budget uh, because the G the GAO, one administrative agency to the other, the GAO is saying the Office of Management and Budget improperly froze the money for policy reasons. Uh, the Office of Management and Budget said in response, 
we disagree with the GAO's opinion. OMB uses its apportionment authority to ensure taxpayer dollars are properly spent consistent with the president's priorities and with the law. So, again, this would be a matter to potentially be investigated and perhaps litigated. Democrats are going to run around now saying, well, we finally have what we've lacked this entire time. They haven't addressed what they've lacked, which is a claim that the president violated the law. They've used terms that indicate criminal conduct during the course of their investigation and hearings like bribery and extortion. But they never could point to a law that he violated. Well, now they have that at least an argument to use in that vein with this GAO opinion. So how does that play out? And what should Senate Republicans do? Should that change their attitude at all about proceeding with the trial now that they have the articles of impeachment? Should that lead them to do what the House wouldn't do, uh, investigate uh, and, and, and uh, obtain witness testimony that the House could have pursued but didn't? Uh, Wall Street Journal opining before the GAO opinion that uh, came out this morning uh, that the speaker admits she withheld articles to intimidate Republicans into calling witnesses that the House wouldn't call. She admitted that on uh, ABC's This Week. We play clips from her performance there when uh, Pelosi said, we think we accomplished in the past few weeks. What we think we accomplished in the past few weeks is that we wanted the public to see the need for witnesses Witnesses with firsthand knowledge of what happened, documentation which the president has prevented from coming to Congress. Uh, now the ball is in their court to either do that or pay a price. In other words, writes the journal editorial board, having failed to make an adequate case, adequate, adequate case to remove Trump, Democrats are now trying to drag out impeachment to further tarnish his reputation and mousetrap Senate Republicans running for reelection. So what is a Senate Majority Leader McConnell and, and, and what are Senate Republicans to do? McConnell seems to be indicating that he's uh, more closely aligned with the Lindsey Graham camp, which is end this crap as quickly as possible, quote unquote. Uh, that's uh, that's Lindsey Graham legalese. Then he is with uh, those who've made noise in the direction of having witnesses. Uh, the House managers for that Pelosi appointed, you present your case, Pat Cipollone, and Jay Sekulow, lawyers for the president, you present your case and then let's call the question for a vote. That seems to be where McConnell is at. In point of fact, he uh, all but said so in reaction to the articles of uh, the articles of impeachment finally making their way to his chamber. McConnell saying Speaker Pelosi and the House have taken our nation down a dangerous road. If the Senate blesses this unprecedented and dangerous House process by agreeing that an incomplete case and subjective basis are enough to impeach a president, we will almost guarantee the impeachment of every future president. Um, that doesn't seem to be somebody who's softening, certainly not in the wake of the Lev Parnas interview. Uh, we'll have to see if there's a softening from McConnell uh, per the GAO opinion. But Parnas uh, made several statements that in and of themselves, I, I don't, especially given you know the questionable credibility uh, of the interview subject, Mr. Parnas, given that he is under federal indictment. I mean, how compelling are these statements? Is this not something that you hear on MSNBC or CNN every night? Lev Parnas, for example, on uh, you know his involvement on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, President Trump knew exactly what was going on. 
he was aware of all my movements. Uh, he, I wouldn't do anything without the consent of Rudy Giuliani or the president. I have no intent, I have no reason to speak to any of these officials. I mean, they have no reason to speak to me. Why would President Zelensky's inner circle or Minister Vakov or all these people or President Poroshenko meet with me? Who am I? Mm -hmm. They were told to meet with me, and uh, that's the secret that they're trying to keep. I was on the ground doing their work. I don't know that that's a secret you're trying to keep when Giuliani's name is mentioned in the transcript of the call between Trump and Zelensky. How, how is that a secret? Giuliani dispatched to Ukraine. Uh, you can argue the judiciousness of that. I would argue it was not judicious. I don't think that Giuliani's presence in Ukraine has helped this, uh, helped the president one iota. I think it's been kind of a mess. But that's not to say anything that was, that was done was illegal uh, or impeachable. So I'm, I'm not sure what is revelatory about that statement or this one about the Bidens. Yeah, well, it was, it was all about Joe Biden, Hunter Biden. And uh, also, Rudy had a personal thing with the Manafort stuff, uh, uh, the Black Ledger. Mm -hmm. and that was another thing uh, that they were looking into. But uh, it was never about uh, corruption. It was never it was strictly about uh, the Burisma, which included Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. Well, again, the fact that it was never about corruption is Mr. Parnas's opinion. But in addition to that, uh, the matter of it being about the Bidens, at least in part, also part of the transcript of the phone call, the July 25th phone call between Trump and Zelensky. So, again, what is groundbreaking about that assertion? Not a lot. The question is how to handle the gamesmanship of House Democrats when it comes to this impeachment. Do you want to extend this? Do you want to open up the door to witnesses? Do you want to, as Andy McCarthy at National Review argued, essentially not play the game that House Democrats and Pelosi wants you to play, which is doing their work for them, and hold the trial in abeyance until House Democrats are fully completed with their investigation rather than having this sort of ongoing real-time grand jury? Or, as McCarthy suggested, do you file a, you know, take a motion to dismiss without prejudice return the articles to the House and say, complete your investigation. Everybody you intend to call, everybody you want to call, whatever timeline you want to operate, the evidence that the additional documentation you seek, and then bring us back whatever articles of impeachment you want that are complete, a final record of the investigation, and will be the trier of fact, which is our role. We're not the investigative arm in this process. You are. I still think I'm still leaning in the direction where I think McConnell and some like Senate Judiciary Chairman Lindsey Graham are, which is have people present their cases. You had your opportunity to do this investigation. It was what it was. You presented the articles of impeachment. Your House managers make their case. The president's lawyers make their case. And let's vote this thing up already. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The mechanics of elections are not sexy. It's much more fun to think about and kibitz about two 70-year-old socialists uh, sniping at each other after debate. All the money spent and all the activism and uh, what happens if the system is rigged or incompetent? What happens when people are, some people are voting 
and taking away the franchise, voting illegitimately, and thus taking away the franchise of a legitimate U.S. voter. Like sort of important questions. We've talked about this over months with uh, Mark Hemingway, who's done some really good research on this, including a Federalist piece last year that found, for example, 10 of California's 58 counties have registration rates, voter registration rates, exceeding 100 percent of the voting age population. In fact, the voter registration rate for the entire state of California, 40 million people, is 101 percent. That's odd. He also found eight states, as well as the District of Columbia, have total voter registration tallies exceeding 100 percent. And in total, 38 states have counties where voter registration rates exceed 100 percent. And it's not red or blue. It's both. For example, Kentucky, voter registration rate in 48 of its 102 counties exceeds 100 percent. About 15 percent of America's counties where there's reliable voter data, that is 400 out of 2,800 counties, have voter registration rates over 100 percent. That's a real problem in terms of the administration of elections. Since they're state and local matters, you need state and local activism to press state and local election authorities to do their jobs. Well, in Wisconsin, they have an organization doing just that. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, Rick Eisenberg is the founder and current president and general counsel of that organization that has been fighting to remove about 230,000 people from Wisconsin's voter rolls that have been found undeserving of continuing to be on those voter rolls. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Rick Eisenberg. Rick, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. But the most recently I saw that Wisconsin judge had to hold a, the state election commission in contempt for its failure to comply with his order to see people that uh, need to be removed from the rolls, removed from the rolls. What is the state of the case and the basis for the removal that the judge so ordered? The um, Wisconsin, like uh, many other states, invo- uh, belongs to a consortium called ERIC that does data matching. Um, I was very pleased to hear that you started out with a citation to Mark Hemingway, who has written good pieces showing that across the country, not just in Wisconsin, but everywhere, we have lots of outdated registrations. We've got people who are on the rolls, but they don't live at the addresses they're registered at any longer, and they're no longer eligible to vote at those addresses. This consortium, Eric, does data matching. It identifies people who have reported an address other than the one they are registered at to a government agency. That indicates that they've probably moved. And Wisconsin law says that when election officials get that type of reliable information, what they're supposed to do is send a notice to the voter saying, look, we have information that you've moved and uh, are no longer eligible to vote at this address. If that's in error, please return this postcard to us. We'll continue your registration. And if the voter ignores that, then the registration is deactivated. Now, in Wisconsin, that doesn't mean a lot because we have same-day registration at the polls. So if you show up to vote mm-hmm. and you didn't move, but your registration was deactivated because you ignored the postcard or you didn't see it, well, you can just re-register right there and cast your ballot. Nevertheless, the Wisconsin Election Commission is refusing to deactivate the registration of those voters, keeping these outdated names on the rolls for, uh, depending upon uh, the situation, one or two election cycles. We filed a lawsuit seeking to compel them to follow the law. An Ozaki Circuit Court judge uh, ruled in our favor last month, and then a period of time passed in which the Election Commission refused to comply with that order. Uh, we were forced, uh, yeah, I've been practicing law for almost 40 years, I've never had to move to have government official held in contempt. I mean, even if they disagree, they generally comply. The judge did hold the Election Commission in contempt, but all of that is on hold now because the Election Commission has appealed and the order has been uh, stayed or suspended. The uh... 
lower court judge issued a writ of mandamus with the Wisconsin Election Commission. That's right. And what that means is he found that they had a plain legal duty to deactivate these names if voters did not respond, if the, you know, the, the people did not respond to a notice uh, saying, look, we're going to deactivate your registration if, uh, if, you, don't, uh, uh, if you don't tell us uh, otherwise. The, the arguments that are being made. The the, uh, the lawyer for the Wisconsin Elections Commission uh, telling the uh, lower court judge, hey, if you make us remove these people who shouldn't be on the voter rolls, that's just going to create chaos right now. So let's just keep them on for now. And, you know, we'll deal with them after the next election. I mean, what kind of argument is that? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. This data matching process is is very, very accurate. Uh uh, because the source of the information is the voter herself, right? You don't get on this movers list uh, based on anything other than data that you have provided. And we think that the movers list is about 95% accurate. Now, it's not perfect, but any effort to maintain ballot integrity or to clean up the voter rolls is never going to be perfect. But here in Wisconsin, we have a lot of safeguards, right? You get this notice. All you have to do is return the notice and your registration doesn't change. If for some reason you don't do that, I'm sure that the parties will be running extensive ground games and registering voters here in the state. You will be able to register online or by mail uh, prior to the election. Or on Election Day, as you you, said. Yeah. yeah, Yes. For some reason you don't do that, you can register on Election Day. You have to have proof of residence, but we're a photo ID state, and so most people are going to have that as a matter of course, or they would be unable to count cast their ballot anyway. Well, but also, so also, it, also that are really a very modest effort to clean up uh, the rolls, but yet it's being greeted by his with hysteria. Whether whether it was a modest effort or is a Herculean task is irrelevant. It, I, I get to say when I get when I'm supposed to when I'm required to do my professional duties. Hey, your honor, um, I know that's my professional responsibility, but it's just too onerous to do it over the next uh, 10 months. So we'll get back to it in 2021, if that's OK with you. I mean, what kind of ridiculous argument is that? Well, it's a, it, 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 it would be, a, as you point out, right, if it's their job, it's their job. If that's what the law requires, it's what the law requires. But it's also not very onerous either. And so it, 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 it uh, you know, the, the, the the sad fact here is that for whatever reason, the Election Commission simply doesn't want to comply with the law. If they have a disagreement, if they think that the law is too harsh or it should be more forgiving or it should be something other than what it is, then what bureaucrats need to do in that instance is they need to go to the legislature and they need to ask them to change the law. They don't get to remake it. Uh-huh. And uh, it's very important for us to understand that and recognize that the rule of law has to be respected. And this case is about that as much as it is about, uh, you know, voter rolls. I want to get to your reaction to uh, what uh, your esteemed governor, Tony Evers, said, because, of course, the rule of law is a, re- a vast right wing conspiracy. He said this move pushed by Republicans to remove 200,000 Wisconsinites from the voter rolls. It's just another attempt at overriding the will of the people and stifling the Democratic, small-D Democratic process. Uh, how, how do you respond to that? Are all 200,000 people, 230,000 people, are they all Democrats that uh, are, you know, uh, rock-ribbed Democrat voters that you're trying to remove? Yeah, yeah no, first of all, they're not 234,000 people that are being purged by the rolls. These are largely names of people that are moved. And when Nancy Pelosi said the 234,000 people would be denied the opportunity to vote by our lawsuit, the Washington Post of all places gave her a pants on fire. Second, nobody knows the partisan or demographic characteristic of people who might, few people who might be on this list uh, 
uh, erroneously. You had people who haven't moved. He is Rick Essenberg. He's the founder and current president and general counsel of the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Thank you for joining us. Good luck with the case. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on. listening to the Dan Proft show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft show. Will the 2020 election be another election dictated by the deplorables? That's a question that uh, Grady means our next guest Answers in a piece that he authored for TheHill.com. Grady Means is a writer and for, former corporate strategy consultant. He served in the White House as a policy assistant to Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. Grady, thanks so much for joining us at the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Uh, Dan, thanks for having me on. So uh, the interesting piece you wrote uh, that the, uh, the politics are propelling both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. You write Trump, Warren Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez. They're all cut from the same political cloth. They're all outsiders. They ignore the admonitions of the cultural and political elite and command 80 percent of the public vote. And Trump and Sanders are the most interesting of that lot. It's interesting to call Bernie Sanders uh, a uh, an outsider. I mean, it's uh, it's just odd to have somebody in office for three decades who's still an outsider. Well, you know, he's always been an outsider. He's um, he has uh, strong, uh, I'd say, radically left views. Um, uh, he's never really been uh, a leader in Congress. Um, he has always gone his own way. And so I think he is uh, a career outsider. I mean, it, he knows his views are on the fringe. And um, frankly, he doesn't care. Uh, it, he just moves aggressively in one direction. And to your point, uh, he's taken uh, not so friendly fire this week from both uh, Obama world and Clinton world. Uh, a piece by uh, Jim Messina, former Obama campaign manager in Politico, a piece on CNN from Joe Lockhart, former spokesman for Clinton, both essentially saying you cannot nominate Bernie Sanders to be our party's nominee in uh, 2020 if you want not only to win the presidency, but if you want to even maintain the House and think about having a shot for the Senate. Well, I think that's right. Uh, Bernie uh, is very strong in his views. I mean, uh, he has always been um, radical left. He honeymooned in the Soviet Union. He's admired the Soviet Union and more recently Russia uh, verbally. Uh, and his ideas uh, uh, would uh, basically add $50 trillion over 10 years to the federal budget. And I've got to say, you know, the federal budget is only $5 trillion a year now, and it's hard to get that money. So there's no way that'll happen. It'll create the economy, and people are a little scared of him now. It's interesting, though. He does have some, I mean, for, you know, and you sort of uh, tackle this. He does have some, quote unquote, star power associated with him that's not associated with some of the establishment figures like uh, Joe Biden. And I'm not just talking about AOC, but some Hollywood people. And, of course, he has the holdovers from those who supported him in 2016 as well. Um, the, 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 I, I guess the indication is that the anti-establishment, anti-elite uh, attitude is so strong across the political spectrum in this country that people will overlook some um, wild positions that uh, Bernie has taken, somebody running essentially as a self-avowed socialist in 2020 uh, 20 America. 
Well, I think that's right. Bernie actually doesn't uh, address his message to the people he pretends to. Bernie doesn't address his message to the poor. Uh, he always talks about helping the poor and the underprivileged, but his, his message is actually to the, you know, uh, upper 10% uh, uh, younger um, uh, Hollywood types or younger college types uh, who simply want to feel like they're doing good and uh, want to do like feel like they're doing the right thing. And he actually finds resonance there. Uh, people who are more savvy, even people in the inner city, uh, know that uh, what Bernie's suggesting won't work. Uh, but Bernie doesn't care. Uh, in my view, it's a fairly cynical approach. Well, uh, but Bernie gets good resonance. And, and, it, and is it a situation where basically authenticity trumps feasibility? I think that's right. Uh, that's true of both Bernie and Trump, uh, and to some degree AOC. Uh, I put uh, uh, Warren in a different category. Uh, Warren uh, tends to stretch the truth all the time, but she doesn't care because she knows there's people who want to believe what she says, and so she pushes that. But in any case, certainly uh, Trump comes across as authentic, and he finds an audience. So does Bernie, uh, and uh, and basically that uh, will take Bernie through uh, most of the um, most of the primaries because he doesn't need to continuously raise money. He has a, a group of people, uh, which probably represent 20 uh, percent of the 20 25 percent of the uh, Democratic voters, who will just simply stick with him. Uh, he's the only candidate on the Democratic side who basically has that kind of machinery behind him. He is Grady Means, writer, former corporate strategy consultant, served in the White House as a policy assistant to VP Nelson Rockefeller. Check out his piece, TheHill.com, The Political Earthquake Propelling Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Grady Means, thanks so much for joining us on The Dan Prop Show. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. your hands to yourself. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So yesterday, President Trump got phase one done. Chinese delegation in tow. President Trump explaining the deal that the U.S. and China have agreed to. Today we take a momentous step, one that has never been taken before with China, toward a future of fair and reciprocal trade as we sign phase one of the historic trade deal between the United States and China. Together we are righting the wrongs of the past and delivering a future of economic justice and security for American workers, farmers, and families. Michael Pillsbury, who is a uh, Hudson Institute scholar, he's also the author of a fairly well-respected book in these circles, The Hundred-Year Marathon, talking about uh, China's uh, play to depose America as the world's hegemon. He was on with our friend Cheryl Atkinson on Full Measure, and he described the importance of the Phase 1 deal. What does Phase 1 seek to do, or what will it accomplish? 
Well, the most important thing about phase one, in my opinion, is to have an enforcement mechanism where the Chinese set up a system that the American side can make complaints. You stole this intellectual property from us on this date and we lost this much money. Please fix it. China's never agreed to it with any other country in the world. So this will be the breakthrough that the president will have achieved. But there's also something that the president cares a lot about called the trade deficit. That China has a $500 billion trade deficit with us. It's the biggest one in the world. The Chinese are promising to greatly increase the purchase of American exports. Well, it's, he misspoke there. He meant we have a half a trillion dollar trade deficit with the Chinese. Trade deficits don't matter. He's wrong about that. Um, President Trump's wrong about that. But nonetheless, uh, it is noteworthy that uh, the phase one deal calls for China to buy about $200 billion worth of ag goods over the next uh, four years. Jim Cramer, mad money Jim Cramer on CNBC saying, you know, the, all of the uh, predictions about tariffs, uh, the negative predictions about the tariffs and this approach to China proved untrue. Look, I, I think that the takeaway for me is that tariffs worked. If you go back in time, people just said, listen, tariffs won't work, won't change them. The Chinese are all powerful. Tariffs will hurt our consumer. The consumer is going to see a lot of inflation, both at the producer level and the consumer level, ultimately, uh, which is going to hurt the U.S. economy. Uh, none of that happened. The whole narrative is, is that China caved and China's going to continue to cave because we didn't take the tariffs off. So I keep wondering uh, when people are going to recognize that it is historic that tariffs did succeed. They weren't supposed to work. The Chinese were supposed to be able to get around them. It didn't happen. Uh, the Chinese were uh, kind of accepting that they had to do something in order to keep the American market. Yeah, well, with all due respect to Mad Money Kramer, um, what actually happened, yes, the tariffs brought the Chinese to heel to some extent, and to the extent that you can trust anything they sign on to, number one. Number two, uh, the issue wasn't about us not being hurt. The issue is... China's economy, as anticipated, was hurt much more severely. China's consumers hurt much more severely than our consumers. But just because we have economic growth doesn't mean that tariffs were growth policy. Tariffs retard growth. And so taxes, which is what a tariff is, not pro-growth. So, yes, we took a hit. The Chinese took a bigger hit and it brought them to the table. Now, with respect to phase two, and it's point of fact, it's interesting that Pillsbury points out it's the enforcement mechanism that's been set up. That's the real key to phase one, not the two hundred billion dollars in ag purchases. But uh, what about the prospects for phase two? We go back to Michael Pillsbury. Well, this is a very delicate issue because phase two is supposed to be things that were not resolved in phase one. The biggest one being the subsidies Chinese companies get from their government. They give them massive unfair advantages against our companies. Some people think phase one means no more tariffs. President Trump has dropped them all. No. He's kept most of the tariffs on China. So the pressure is still on. China is very unhappy about this. Uh, and uh, the best uh, reaction to all of this is from Chuck Schumer. I mean, th these guys. The shameless. This so-called deal does ne next to nothing of substance for workers and businesses feeling the brutal, merciless weight of China's trade and industrial abuse. That's just such a remarkable statement from a guy who has been in Congress since America was a forest, who uh, you know had no problems with Democrat regimes who did nothing on the on any of these scores either. 
And then he then he's going to say, yeah, yeah, you you move the flag, but you didn't move it far enough. So, a pot, I mean, it's just it's really something. I mean, it's not surprising, but it's still worth noting. For more on this topic, as well as of course impeachment theater, we're pleased to be joined again by David Harsani, senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. David, thanks for joining us. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. So the uh, the USMCA that's going to be inked soon and then this phase one announcement yesterday. I mean, these are these are Trump victories. It's hard to view them otherwise, isn't it? Politically, I think absolutely. It uh, I mean, the perception is that we we're winning the trade deal. And I, I expect, as you just mentioned, that we would win it because our the pain we feel or that we don't actually see because of economic growth in general with tariffs. Uh, helped us win these. But sometimes I hear people complain about things, as you mentioned, the the trade deficit, but also subsidies. Like, why wouldn't I want China, the Chinese government, to subsidize products that come here and make them cheaper for me? I I will never understand that. But yes. um, Also, one other point on that. Why wouldn't I want them to subsidize their state-owned companies because it's going to make them less competitive to our not subsidized private sector companies? Right. Now, obviously, there's always some pain involved when you have that sort of thing where creative destruction here where you have industries that hurt but overall we always ignore the consumer side of this which allows us to have more money to buy other things to create new industries but anyway i'm never going to win that argument with most people so uh we're worried about china most people are on right and left looks like donald trump is is winning that battle and i think politically that's good for him all right he is david harsani senior writer for national review the book first freedom a ride through america's enduring history with the gun from the revolution to today. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you. Come bring your good friends too. A cause is getting nearer. It's a new with you. Come and join the living. It's not so far from you. And it's getting nearer. Soon it will all be true. Oh, peace train sounding louder. you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The uh, great French philosopher and journalist Frederick Bastiat, if you haven't read the law, you should read it. He uh, said on the topic of economics, consumption is the great end and purpose of political economy, that good and evil, morality and immorality, harmony and discord, everything finds its meaning in the consumer, for he represents mankind. So look at economics through the eye of the consumer. And he wrote, uh, in addition to that, there's a fundamental antagonism between the seller and the buyer because the seller wants goods on the market to be scarce and short supply and expensive. The latter, the consumer, wants them to be abundant and plentiful supply and cheap. Our law which should at least be neutral, take the side of the seller against the buyer, of the producer against the consumer, of high prices against low prices, of scarcity against abundance. They operate, if not intentionally, at least logically, on the assumption that a nation is rich when it is lacking in everything. This is why 
you look through the eyes of the consumer, he argues. And so our friend Mark Perry over at the University of Michigan and the Carpe Diem blog uh, has uh, updated his quote-unquote chart of the century, which is his tracking of the price changes of selected consumer goods, services, along with wages over the last 20 years. And he included fourth quarter of last year to update them. And it's interesting what you find when you look at things that have gotten more expensive in real terms over that 20-year period and those things that have gotten less expensive. Uh, one of the big takeaways from the graph, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof or and at Dan Prof show, the two Twitter handles, you can always find me. The greater the degree of government involvement in the provision of a good or a service, the greater the price increases. In other words, and conversely, the lower the degree of government involvement in the provision of a good or service, the lower have been the price increases over time. So, for example, new cars, household furnishings, all of those products have become significantly more affordable over the 20 years, with uh, TVs declining the most in price in real dollars 100%. By contrast, hospital services, college tuition and fees, medical care services, housing, those have all increased over that same period of time. What we also see is that the prices of goods subject to foreign competition, like toys and television sets, have tumbled most precipitously over the past two decades as trade barriers have come down around the world, while those non-tradable goods or services like hospital stays and college tuition have increased significantly. Government involvement, though, is the key here, really is the key, the key driver. So government involvement, whether it becomes, whether it's domestic regulation or in the form of trade barriers, as he suggested. The interesting thing, too, though, as the economy is changing, colleges, for the first time, college textbooks declining, college tuition increasing only at 1.7% through December of last year. That was the smallest yearly increase in the history of the CPI for college tuition and fees for any month going all the way back to 1978. So that higher ed bubble where people are starting to finally make an assessment in terms of what you're getting for what you're shelling out and for the debt that you're incurring and also be in the digital age, all of the options you have to get the same sort of exposure to scholarship that you can get on a college campus and you don't have to pay 40 or 50 grand a year to get it. Maybe that higher education bubble is actually starting to burst something that had been sustained through government subsidy. There we go again. Less government, better for the consumer. More government, worse for the consumer. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Well, we've got another installment from the future Department of Gulag's head in a Comrade Bernie Sanders administration. This uh, Iowa staffer named Kyle Jurek, who was caught by under, uh, undercover reporters, James O'Keefe's Project Veritas, uh, second video released about what he has to say about uh, well his own personal philosophy, how popular this personal philosophy is in Camp Bernie, and uh, more commentary on uh, just what uh, a Bernie Sanders administration has in store for those who do not hew to the orthodoxy. What would you kind of consider yourself, like, where on that spectrum? I'm an anarcho-communist. So, like, I'm as far to the left as you can possibly get. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, there's, that I know of, one, two, three, one, two, three, 
or four of the organizers in this office are, are you know, leftists. So Justin, me, Jared, you know, uh, Jessica uh, are all definitely further left than the rest of them. If you can't uh, handle me at my most communist, then you don't deserve me at my most anarchist. There's a lot of me's in the Bernie campaign. And like that was the intention of of Gulag, right? It's like not only to like limp to like remove the like people that were like insidious to the state from the state, like, hey, you guys are all causing problems. You're like working against the revolution. We're just gonna remove you and put you in Siberia where you learn the fing value of like being a comrade. Like I mean and that's like you know, that's what it has to be. Like our prisons in the United States right now are far worse, far worse than anything that they experienced in fucking gulag. Like, people get raped, people fucking work 12 hours a day, people have to go fight fires in California for a dollar. You know what I mean? Like, that that's super Yeah. Um, Soviet Union didn't do that. I suspect uh, Mr. Jurek has not read uh, much of Solson Heenson in comparing Soviet gulags to U.S. prisons, but that's sort of even beside the point, isn't it? It really goes to the point that uh, Theodore Dalrymple wrote about in FirstThings.com, a recent piece, Identity as Ideology. And we're pleased to be joined now by Theodore Dalrymple, who's a retired psychiatrist who worked in the prisons in England, contributing editor of City Journal, the Dietrich Weissman Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and author of the recently published Grief and Other Stories. Dr. Dalrymple, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for asking me. So um, the the Bernie Sanders staffer who uh, talks glowingly about gulags for people that need to be denazified back in the day or de-Trumpified in the current context, do you chalk that up as just to, uh, you know, the exuberance of your 21st century anarcho-communist? Or is there something that that reflects about the identity politics of our day? Well, I think the uh, totalitarian temptation is fairly strong, uh, not only uh, in America, of course, but elsewhere. And uh, many people think that their moral vision of the world is so untouchable, so obviously right, that the only possible explanation for someone uh, who doesn't agree with evil, so there can't be any uh, real disagreement, there can only be a fight of good against evil. You, in your uh, your piece I referenced at firstthings.com, you talk about the difference between devoting yourself to a cause that may be important to you and but unimportant to others. Uh, you use the example of rescuing hedgehogs. There's apparently a movement to rescue hedgehogs in England. But where that jumps the chasm and becomes something on the order of what we heard from that Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders staffer, it becomes a religion and uh, no dissent is tolerated. Can, can you explain that, that divide? Well, my, my view is that uh, causes for some people, not obviously for all people, even causes which have some, um, uh, some virtue, uh, can become uh, the meaning of life uh, and uh, a substitute uh, religion because most people, after their basic needs are satisfied, and in most uh, most Western countries, most people's basic needs are satisfied, uh, they need some kind of transcendent purpose. Uh, and religion no longer gives this uh, to many people, certainly not to the intelligentsia. And uh, therefore, they look for something else, and they find it in um, it, they find it in uh, causes. Um, the person who rescues hedgehogs uh, is quite aware that the meaning of life is not rescuing hedgehogs. Mm. He's not trying to reform society. He's only trying to 
to uh, rescue hedgehogs, which is uh, a perfectly uh, good thing to do, in my view. Sure. Um, uh, but uh, the person who, uh, shall we say, the vegetarians or ve- vegans, um, I don't believe there are no arguments for vegetarianism. I don't believe it's untrue that uh, animals are ill-treated and probably have to be ill-treated if they are to produce enough meat for everyone uh, to eat. But it's a far cry from saying to, from uh, using arguments uh, about that subject to um, demonstrating in the streets and in some cases even uh, using violence. Uh, the uh, um, thinking about this, the 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 uh, identity as ideology piece of it. And uh, sort of the phenomenon that I think is attached to it, which is solidarity and marginality. Um, I'm going to, to identify a group or a group of individuals, a group of animals, a group that is being persecuted in some way, according to me. And even if I'm not part of that group by experience or identity, I'm going to make that my cause celeb and essentially sort of um, serve as a, a martyr for to that movement. We seem to be having more of that, even so far, particularly in the area of uh, climate politics, where you have people talking about not having children, people, even this voluntary mass extinction movement that has uh, that has uh, availed itself uh, and and picked up uh, picked up liege with some of the uh, the more uh, more vociferous climate alarmists. Can you just just speak to that, the solidarity and marginality to the point of um, uh, uh, of these these movements becoming something akin to a death cult? Well, people, first of all, people, I think, want to identify with a group, but they also want to be, um, they also want to be individuals. And in that sense, there's a connection, if you like, with the spreading of, of, uh, of uh, things like tattooing. Uh, people who get themselves tattooed both want to be against society and also want and uh, want to be individuals but they also uh, want to be part of a uh, a group which uh, is uh, which gives them some sense of uh, community and some sense of purpose uh, so uh, they want two things at once they want to be individual and by uh, by being oppositional they think they're becoming individual, but at the same time, uh, they want to be part of an enveloping uh, group, the warmth of an enveloping group. Uh, uh, and this, sorry. Now, I, I, how much of it in, in your experience, again, I mentioned you uh, worked in the, the prison system in England for a long time. You know, how much of the sort of the emptiness that may lead one to commit a crime or may lead one to try to fill a void uh, uh, in their lives through through sort of identity, ideology. Uh, how much of that goes back to family structure? I mean, maybe not even a causal link, but at least a correlative one, that there, there was something that was missing from the family at an early age, and there's a void that people try to fill and often do so destructively? Well, I, I mean, there's certainly a correlative one. Um, if we take, for example, the phenomenon of, uh, of heroin addiction in Britain, which increased enormously between the 1950s and and now it's it, it's slightly declining actually but it but it increased enormously so that in in uh, about 1955 
it was known that there were perhaps 65 heroin addicts in Britain. And then in 2000, there were something like 300,000. Uh, when you actually saw these people, what you um, realized was that they wanted to be drug addicts. It's not a question of something that happened. And contrary to the ideas of the of, of the orthodox ideas, if you like, uh, of of many doctors, they actually sought to be drug addicts. Drug addiction was an alternative um, society for them. Now, when you actually looked at at those people on the whole, uh, they came from very fractured homes, uh, the kind of homes where uh, where there is ser- serial stepfatherhood, where there is no um, there's no real model of a of a family life, uh, where there's nothing uh, there's no um, uh, there's no stability. I want to I want to pick up I want to pick up on this topic uh, that you, I think you're getting you're discussing of agency uh, when we come back. We're talking to Theodore Dalrymple, retired psychiatrist, contributing uh, editor to the City Journal, and the, uh, the uh, author of the recently published Grief and Other Stories. We'll be right back with more, Dr. Dalrymple. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Dr. Theodore Dalrymple, retired psychiatrist, contributing editor of City Journal, a, the Dietrich Weissman Felt, the Manhattan Institute, and the author of the book Grief and Other Stories. And uh, Dr. Dalrymple, you were talking about uh, uh, the heroin epidemic in Britain and that uh, uh, many of the drug addicts were choosing to be drug addicts. This wasn't something that happened to them. They had agency and they were making a choice. This seems to be something, um, this issue of agency that gets um, uh, confused in our politics in the West, where people are not responsible for the things that occur in their lives, even when they're making conscious choices that have certain consequences. And I I speak to that with respect to the uh, trend upward in suicide in America Uh, and the the, actually the declining life expectancy within certain middle-aged demographics in America. And there's this piece that was done by Nick uh, Eberstadt from the American Enterprise Institute about uh, uh, the decline in male participation in the workforce and what he writes about the demand side aspects of a changing economy that everybody talks about. But what not enough people talk about are the supply side effects, the institutional effects. And he notes that uh, the the difference between labor force participation between uh, married men and unmarried men is marked. The different and 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 it and it it essentially disappears once you uh, control for married or unmarried, regardless of college degree or uncollege de- or, or the lack of a college degree, which is how powerful the married effect is. And he also speaks to this idea that there are just a number of men, prime age men, who are choosing not to participate in the labor force, even as we have seven million unfilled jobs in America at present. And I just wanted you to speak to the idea of agency when we talk about the choices that are made 
that are uh, that 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 uh, lead people down a road to grief, despair, and destructive behavior. Yes, well, I think it's a very complicated question, of course, and you have to to look at uh, you have to be aware that causation can work in two directions, or there can be a, a correlation without causation. Many people, in my experience, are encouraged to believe that they are not agents even as they are making choices themselves. So they live in this very peculiar situation. On the one hand, they are making choices, and on the other hand, they are told that they are not making choices. People in authority or with some capacity to help them if they present themselves as not having agency. So that, for example, drug addicts will say that they would stop taking drugs if they received the necessary help. But on the other hand, when talking amongst themselves, will talk about uh, where they can get the best drugs and which people are, are uh, the most foolish in believing their untruths. And they hold these two things in their minds at the same time. So they believe themselves like everyone else to be agents and on the other hand they present themselves as not being agents and then if you tell yourself a lie often enough it becomes your truth so eventually they do believe themselves not to be agents again in your experience talking to the prisoner that the system treated me unfairly not i committed a crime and wound up here how, how do you move somebody to the position of believing themselves to be a victim of circumstances rather than a moral agent to uh, the place of being a moral agent, taking responsibility and charting a different course. I mean, sort of it's the whole story of how to reduce recidivism, for example, right? First of all, of course, recidivism does actually go down with age uh, spontaneously, Mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. I believe that a Socratic dialogue could at least start people thinking. So, for example, if I asked people how they started, why or how they started taking heroin, they would say, I felt in with the wrong crowd and they all said that practically all of them said that and I would say to them then that it was curious how I met many people who fell in with the wrong crowd but I never met any member of the wrong crowd itself though these people were said to be unintelligent and poorly educated they always grasped the point I was making and it was this kind of Mm. conversation which I hope uh, had some effect on them and sometimes it It did. I won't say that it's the panacea. Uh, But the fact is that we live in in an environment where nobody talks to them in that fashion. There's a a friend of mine who's a pastor in Indianapolis, and he deals with ex-offenders as well as drug addicts and people that are... um uh, are struggling because of the choices they've made. And one of the things he says, and that he's taught by his mom, one of 15 kids that uh, she raised mostly by herself, remarkably. But he said one of the things that she impressed upon all the kids was just because we're poor doesn't give you license to behave poorly. And so when we hear politicians and some academics talk about the link between poverty and crime and the link between mass incarceration and crime, and so what we really need to do to eliminate crime is to eliminate poverty, is to eliminate mass incarceration, uh, the argument that he makes is that uh, those people saying those things in a generic way, sort of have it backwards. Well, it's wor- it's worse than that. In creating that kind of atmosphere, they're actually promoting crime. So I once suggested, I mean, uh, semi-facetiously, that one of the greatest causes of crime in Western society is criminology and criminologists, because they are busy peddling the idea that uh, actually criminals don't really know what they're doing. Mm. 
that the criminal the criminologists know what they're doing and why they're doing it, but the criminals themselves don't. And so um, perhaps sociologists know, psychologists know, criminologists know, but the people who are actually acting uh, don't know what they're doing. Well, this is just nonsense. And and uh, thinking about uh, those individuals that you've uh, counseled over the years, I mean, do you have um, a particular uh, turnaround story, success story that is illustrative of um, perhaps a, an approach that should be taken? Uh, well... Let me give you one example. Uh, my wife uh, was with me at the time. I met a prisoner in the street, uh, an ex-prisoner in the street, and he had uh, come to me in the prison, and, and he was an addict, and he wanted his drugs. And I refused to give them to him uh, on the grounds that, it, in my view, they were not medically indicated. And, of course, it took much longer to explain why I wasn't giving the drugs than just to give the drugs. Giving the drugs, or giving the, the drugs takes 10 seconds. Explaining why you're not giving the drugs takes 20 minutes, half an hour. Anyway, he thought I was extremely cruel by not giving him what he wanted. But he decided to give it a go. And for the first time, and he came up to me in the street and said, do you remember me? And I said, yes. And um, he said, you wouldn't give me drugs. And I thought you were very cruel. Uh, and he said, but then I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And for the first time, he was only 32 at that time. First time for 16 years, he was neither, he was taking neither illegal, legally prescribed drugs, and he was much the better for it. So he had learned that a refusal on the path, well, on my part, was not just a sign of cruelty. It was, I wasn't just being uh, moralistic. I was actually taking him seriously as an individual by explaining him to him that he had the choice and so on and so forth. And incidentally, by getting rid of a lot of mythology, namely that uh, withdrawal from opiates is a terrible condition. Most people think it's a terrible and unbearable condition. It isn't. But it, it takes much more time to deal with people like that because you have to explain things. Just treating them as if they're objects um, makes things very uh, makes things very easy in a certain kind of way. He is Theodore Dalrymple, retired psychiatrist, contributing editor of City Journal, the Dietrich Weissman Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and author of the new book, Grief and Other Stories. Dr. Dalrymple, thanks for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I just wanted to uh, pick up on all the news on impeachment over the last 24 hours, uh, some of the topics I didn't get to in the first hour when we tackled it. Uh, one thing is those seven House impeachment managers that Pelosi appointed, it is worth noting just in terms of context of all of the hand-wringing and rhetorical excess about fairness as it pertains to the Senate. It depends on the trier's effect. It is worth noting six of the seven managers that Pelosi appointed supported the president's impeachment before anything Ukraine related was on their radar, before the so-called whistleblower complaint was filed and became the centerpiece of this investigation leading to this impeachment. For example, Val Demings from Florida said as early as April after the Mueller report, she wanted to impeach Trump, quote, we are struggling to justify why we aren't beginning impeachment proceedings. Another, Sylvia Garcia, Democrat from Texas, impeaching Donald J. Trump President of the United States of, of a high misdemeanors. That was a resolution 
that she voted for on July 17th. Well, she voted against tabling it, at least, ready to do it. House Democrats at various times were advancing articles of impeachment against Trump or impeachment resolutions against Trump for criticizing NFL players who kneeled during the anthem, for criticizing members of the squad, telling them to go back to their home countries. Remember that episode? AOC was on talk shows talking about he could be impeached for emoluments. Doesn't even know what that word means, clearly. Could be impeached for tax cuts passed by Congress. Seriously. Could be impeached for trying to put a citizenship question on the 2020 census questionnaire. So, I mean, just before you get uh, too wooed, not that you would, by Nancy Pelosi and the prayerful, somber, regrettable decision all these people had to make, and they're so serious and sober in this moment, just abiding their constitutional duties almost against their will, but because of this higher calling they have. It's a bunch of nonsense. One of, one of the many additional stories out today is the, the Ukraine opening an investigation into the alleged stalking or tracking of former Ukrainian ambassador Marie Yavon who did testify during the House impeachment proceedings. And this was part of the Parnas interview, Lev Parnas interview, where this uh, guy named Robert Hyde, who apparently is part of this crew, this Giuliani crew that was over in Ukraine, would send, would, I don't know, keeping an eye on Yovanovitch, tracking her movements, or at least pretending to. The text messages that Parnas released from Hyde, you read like a sort of a goofball who was pretending to be a junior G-man and a high, you know, secret agent man in this uh, surveillance of Yovanovitch. So I don't know how seriously to take it, but it was interesting to note in uh, Parnas's interview with Maddow, he didn't seem to take him all that seriously. This is his reaction. I, I don't believe it's true. I think he was either drunk or he's uh was trying to make himself bigger than it was so I didn't take it seriously and I was trying to if you see I didn't even respond to him most of the time and if I did it was like something like lol or okay or great or you know something like that just to because I wouldn't respond for a long time and then I didn't want him to get rowdy if I saw him next time and say oh why didn't you type response I would just amuse him until eventually as you could see I cut him off so then was surveilling or tracking Ivanovich a material part of whatever Team Giuliani was doing in Ukraine. If the the guy who's the blockbuster interviewee who's supposed to have reset this whole impeachment matter isn't treating that seriously, then I'm not sure Ukraine should, and I'm not sure we should take Democrats who are treating it seriously. The other thing uh, Parnas said, though, trying to loop in Barr, because Barr is a target of House Democrats, too, the effort underway to delegitimize him. Yeah, well, it was, it was all about Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and uh, also Rudy had a personal thing with the Manafort stuff. Did Rudy Giuliani uh, uh, tell you he'd spoken to the Attorney General specifically about Ukraine? Not only Rudy Giuliani. I mean, Victoria and Joe, are, they were all best friends. I mean, Barr, uh, Barr was, uh, Attorney General Barr was basically on the team. Yeah, well, um, that's, a, that's a statement. That's a viewpoint. Uh, there was no indication that he had any communication with Barr. So I'm not sure so sure how much his hearsay, how much probative value his hearsay has. Here's the thing, too. Um, Remember that this is all going on concurrent to the Durham investigation. And there is no question that part of the Democrats perspective here with impeachment is to not only run interference with the Durham investigation and focus people's attention away from the prospect of whatever that may deliver in the coming months but also to undermine the credibility of whatever is delivered as a safeguard in case, for example, it comes back 
does uh, John Durham in his investigation, comes back with arguments that criminal conduct by high ranking officials in the previous administration and perhaps some of the principals that have become cable news TV stars like Comey and McCabe in real time still are at present. Perhaps there's criminal conduct ascribed to them in the Durham report. We don't know, but there's the possibility that this whole thing could turn around on them. And so you got to undermine the Department of Justice and by extension, Attorney General Barr, try to convince people that Barr is Trump's attorney, not the nation's attorney. That's a big part of it, too. So I don't know. Parnas was covering a lot of ground that House and Senate Democrats and the Democrat socialist candidates for president want covered on Trump. All very convenient, too convenient. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, uh, then they came for J.K. Rowling, and then they came for Stephen King, and then they came for any educator or artist or free thinker who didn't hew the orthodoxy of the woke walker. Stephen King, the uh, latest man of the left to be targeted by the so-called cancel culture for this offense— in commenting on the criticism of the Oscar nominees as being too white and too male, Stephen King tweeted, As a writer, I'm allowed to nominate in just three categories. Best picture, best adapted screenplay, best original screenplay. For me, the diversity issue, as it applies to individual actors and directors anyway, did not come up. That said, I would never consider diversity in matters of art, only quality. It seems to me that to do otherwise would be wrong. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You can't denigrate diversity in any form or any context and not expect to be excoriated by the uh, blue check mafia on Twitter and the other woke elites uh, in general civil society that are in control of all those civil institutions that form the basis of civilization, I suppose. And so Stephen King is now facing that woke maelstrom and it. uh comes at an interesting time, again, because just like J.K. Rowling, I mean, this is not uh, somebody who is uh, a conservative. They are both Rowling and King, not just some of the most successful authors in human history, but they're also men and women of the left. But just one transgression against the exalted word diversity, or in the case of J.K. Rowling, uh, against uh, transgenderism, And uh, somebody who was sacked in the U.K. for saying essentially there's a difference between men and women. And uh, you're on the outs. So this piece in the uh, Agonist Journal by Joseph Salemi uh, caught my interest last week. And with each passing day, it just seems to become more and more relevant. Uh, Joseph Salemi is a teacher in the Department of Humanities at NYU and in the Classics Department at Hunter College. He's also the author of A Gallery of Ethopaths, an epic-length satire on modern American life. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So uh, you uh, wrote this piece about sort of the new prudery, as you call it, and uh, words that are no longer uh, allowed to be used. And I'm not talking about uh, George Carlin's seven unspeakable words. I'm talking about words that just run afoul of 
political sensibilities that and it's hard to predict. Um, give us your perspective on that new prudery when it comes to language use, including in the academy, including in the arts, and what you think some of the reasons behind, uh, behind it are. Well, like you say, originally the prudery was directed against what we would call four-letter words. Uh, it's now directed even against things like pronouns. Uh, you have to be very careful whether you refer to someone as he or she or they or it or anything like that. As a matter of fact, at NYU, uh, maybe it's a joke or maybe it isn't. They have little buttons that you can buy or are distributed free, which you can put on yourself to say which kind of pronoun you wish to be addressed by. Uh, when it reaches down to that basic, simple level of language, everything is up for grabs. Uh, you can be attacked for even using the word colored. Uh, sometimes if you use the word black, uh, sometimes if you use any word at all, which someone takes offense at. Uh, and one of the things that happens is, at least in the academic setting, is that very few people talk to each other much anymore. The attitude is, I'm just going to sit in my office or my cubicle, and the only interaction I'll have with my colleagues is to talk about very simple, basic things about work. But we aren't going to allow any kind of freedom of language because you never know what will hit you. And when I say hit you, I mean things like a lawsuit or being brought up before the Human Resources Committee or facing the diversity team. Uh, this thing can happen just from a simple complaint, a simple word, anything at all. Yeah, and uh, one of the other uh, effects I would I would think is uh, both scholarship and art, for example, two categories, become quite vanilla because you're busy, rather than expressing yourself in creative ways, you're busy trying to contemplate the ways in which you could be attacked and guard against those. It's every, you have to qualify everything that you're trying to express or argue. Absolutely correct. Uh, many poets, many novelists, or even people who occasionally write an essay will think twice or sometimes three or four times before they say something or even before they compose a sentence because you're always worried about what someone will say. Now, I'm one of those people. I've never cared what people think about me, and I probably never will. So I can write whatever I like. But, but that doesn't mean I don't get flack from it. I will get people who complain or argue, or, or the thing that you always hear is a kind of mantra, I am offended. And if someone says that to you, you're supposed to freeze. You're supposed to freeze like a deer in the lights of a car. Someone is offended, and you immediately take steps to exonerate yourself. Well, I don't. But a lot of people feel that they have to. And so, yes, there's a pre-censorship, what you might call self-censorship, that comes about as a result of this kind of prudery. It's interesting, too. I mean, I, I uh, uh, listened to an interview that David Spade gave to Howard Stern, uh, to, to people with you think, you know, really uh, value uh, the license to express yourself. Otherwise, they wouldn't have much of a career. And David Spade just talked about, look, I just stay away from politics in my act and my stand up routine, whatever. It's just not worth it. It's I, and it's and it goes both directions. I, I don't uh, spend a lot of time taking cheap shots at Trump. I don't go after the woke walkers like David Chappelle did. It's just not worth it for me. No, as a matter of fact, at most. What you find is comedy in the strict sense, the comedy that I knew when I was a kid is pretty much gone. 
uh, comedians are just not in a position to say anything. I mean, the whole thing about comedy and, and what you would call traditionally the fool, the fool had license to say whatever he wanted to the king. And the idea was, you know, this made for a certain freedom and it made certain things able to be said. That's all gone. That freedom is gone. So as a result, comedy has disappeared, except for a very narrow range of left liberal comedy, which usually is in the form of these little places where you go and you hear somebody make fun of Trump. Uh, that's basically what it is. Uh, you are never going to hear the kind of rip-roaring comedy of the sort that was still alive pretty much in the 1960s and even in the 70s. It's gone now. It's finished. Uh, you can't do it. Uh, I, we're talking to Professor Joseph Salemi, Department of Humanities at NYU. When we come back, I, I just want to get your review of some of what you think the sort of the foundational causes of uh, where we find ourselves today might be. Uh, more with Dr. Uh, Joseph Salemi right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. We're back on the Dan Prof Show with Professor Joseph Salemi, teaches in the Department of Humanities at NYU, the Classics Department of Hunter College, CUNY, and he's the author of A Gallery of Ethopaths, an epic-length satire in modern American life. Uh, Professor, we were talking about um, the censorious culture on campus and everywhere else. Give us uh, some perspective, some historical perspective. What happened to all of those uh, kids who came of age with uh, Lenny Bruce, uh, and who are now in positions of authority and cultural influence today? Well, the fact is, you put your finger on it when you say they come to positions of authority or influence. That's a way of saying, really, that they're in the establishment. And establishments, by their nature, are very pompous and priggish. Uh, they always do the right thing. They always are conscious of their appearance. They're conscious of decorum. So those young kids who were, you know, in Berkeley screaming dirty words back in 1964... Well, many of them now are stockbrokers, politicians. Uh, they've, they've gone on to become persons of great authority and power. So naturally, they don't do what they used to do. Uh, they act like corporate businessmen. Uh, that's one big historical thing that happens. Uh, I mean, think of people like uh, Tom Hayden or Todd Gitlin or John Kerry. They were all radicals back in the Vietnam days, and now they're big shots. And big shots don't do that anymore. Uh, the other thing that I had, that I think is very important is to understand the rise of a certain type of middle-class feminism. Uh, feminism has been around for many, many, many years, but what happened in what they call second-stage feminism was you began to get a kind of middle-class feminism, usually associated with white women, which is very, very prissy and very, very almost neo-Victorian. They never liked the male tendency to use rough language. They never liked boisterousness. They didn't like anything raucous or improper. And they they have had and still have a major effect on feminism today, these middle-class white feminists. And as a result of what of, of their opinions and their attitudes, you can't use dirty language anymore. It's just not possible. Uh, and what you have is people sort of going back to a kind of Victorian mindset where you may not use any word or phrase which might shock a 
female. That's that's another thing that's been historically behind all of this. He is Professor Joseph Salemi, teaches in the Department of Humanities at NYU in the Classics Department, Hunter College, CUNY, author of the book A Gallery of Ethopaths, an epic-length satire on modern American life. And check out his piece, which I'll, his piece, which I'll tweet out at Dan Proft, at theagonist.org, The Agonist Journal. Uh, Professor Salemi, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Thank you. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prop Show. Two of the lead gun grabbers for the Democrat socialist candidates for president are out of the race. Of course, that would be Bobby O and then this week, Corey B. But that doesn't mean you still don't have gun grabbers in positions of authority throughout the country like Ralph KKK Northam in Virginia, not only uh, devoting more budget funds to the DOC in Virginia in anticipation of locking up law-abiding gun owners who otherwise uh, have been law-abiding gun owners but may not be law-abiding gun owners under the new gun control laws passed by Northam and Virginia Democrats. Also, he issued a state of emergency in advance of a Second Amendment rally at the Capitol. He, uh, the governor, suggested that he's nonetheless concerned about credible threats of potential violence and extremism. I love sort of the generic smear as the predicate to you know, basically try and break up a rally and also to treat gun owners as presumptively violent rather than as presumptively peaceful, which is what 99.9 percent of law abiding gun owners are. And, and of course, you have states like Illinois, where even though you have we have right to carry now, thanks to the Supreme Court, you still can't go virtually anywhere outside of your car or your home and carry without running afoul of some gun free zone if somebody wanted to make an issue of it. With the posture of the Democrat socialists against the backdrop of some awful events that they've tried to politically capitalize on by taking away the guns of law abiding, punishing the law abiding for the acts of criminals. This could be a bigger issue than people think in swing states in particular. In November of 2020. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Nikki Goser. She is a, the executive director of the Crime Prevention Research Center. Boy, does she have an awful story to tell. She's the author of the book Stalked and Defenseless, How Gun Control Helped My Stalker Murder My Husband in Front of Me. Uh, Nikki, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. So um, you were in Tennessee uh, 10 years ago. Tell us the story of, of what happened per the title of your book. My husband, Ben, and I were newlyweds, and a man who was stalking me shot my husband seven times, killing him in front of myself and 50 other witnesses in the middle of a busy restaurant. This restaurant was a gun-free zone, and I obeyed that law and left my permitted legal firearm that I normally carried for self-defense locked in my vehicle that night. My stalker did not have a carry permit and brought a gun in illegally into a gun-free zone. I'll probably wonder for the rest of my life 
if I could have prevented that, of course, I'll never know because I was denied a chance. I was stalked and defenseless. I think that gun-free zones are very dangerous. You have to stop and ask yourself, who's most likely to follow the law? It's the good law-abiding people, the people that are fearful of the penalties of law that obey those laws. Bad guys could care less. I think gun-free zones are actually magnets for people with evil intent because they know everyone there is helpless. No one can stop them. I did not actually realize that he was indeed stalking me until that very night at the restaurant when I saw him. He had never been there before. My husband had already asked him to leave me alone. I had already deleted and blocked him from my social media. And when I saw him, I thought, okay, this guy is not just a dedicated karaoke customer. He doesn't have just a simple crush on me. This guy is stalking me. My husband and I were running a mobile karaoke business that night at the restaurant. And he was a karaoke customer that started sending me inappropriate messages over social media. He would come to karaoke night. He started to um, just stand there and stare at me. He wasn't singing songs anymore um, once I deleted him and blocked him. You know, it came across my mind as this guy stalking me. But it wasn't until that night when he came in, I realized, yep, he's stalking me. So I asked management to remove him. I told them, please help me. He's stalking me. Please get him out of here. And when they went to confront him to ask him to leave, he pulled out a 45 and shot my husband in the head and Ben fell to the ground and he stood over Ben and continued to fire six more rounds into him. Wow. And then did somebody take him down in the restaurant or what happened after that? Yeah, I later learned during the trial um, that a United States Marine that just happened to be in the crowd um, tackled that man and a bunch of other guys jumped on top of him. They disarmed him and held him until the police came. I've been told that the police arrived within three minutes of the 911 call, but I can tell you that when it's happening to yourself or your loved one, it seems like an eternity. And and um, so he's sent to prison, but as I understand from uh, an op-ed you've written, that you continue to be harassed by him as much as he can harass you. Yeah, um... You know, I tell people it's not really a criminal justice system. It's just a system. Um, my stalker is getting out of prison in only eight more years. Yeah, this happened in 2009, and he was sentenced to 23 years um, at 100% with no parole. Unfortunately, um, it was it was a bench trial. There was no jury, and the judge dropped it from first-degree premeditated murder to second. Um, but when they say they get 100%, I've learned that's not true. They actually mislead victims on sentencing. He is able to earn early release good behavior credits while he's in prison. And he's been writing me twisted love letters from prison, I've recently learned. So I'm both terrified and furious about his release. I mean, I I fear for my future. I carry a gun for a good reason. Um, From what I understand, he has no parole. He was sentenced to 23 years at 100% with no parole. So when he serves his time, he's out. And so uh, if, if, you, if we can, I mean, as devastating as this, your personal story is, I'm very sorry for that. Um, pull out now. I mean, you're also the executive director of the Crime Prevention Research Center. So you must uh, have exposure to a lot of terrible stories about this that, you know, and it, and it sort of goes back to, this uh, at least one common characteristic, which is people who were in positions where they couldn't legally protect themselves were preyed upon by criminals. And now with the prospect of this man being released at some point can prey again on you 
even if you're able to protect if if if, if you even if you're able to protect yourself, uh, you know, in the future. So I just want you to sort of speak to how pervasive you think this is, and particularly with respect to women, because of course one of the arguments that's legitimately made is that a gun is a great equalizer between uh, predators who are mostly men and victims who are often women. Right. Well, I can touch on the dangers of gun-free zones, um, you know, especially for women. Um, look, these women should not be made defenseless. There are like one in six women have been stalked in their life, according to the CDC. So if a woman's made defenseless in a gun-free zone, I'll give you an example. If a woman works at a business that prohibits guns on the business property, so she can't have her legal handgun to protect herself inside the business and she can't even have the gun locked inside of her vehicle in the parking lot. That woman is defenseless there as well as when she stops by the grocery, the gas station, the bank, and even when she pulls into her own driveway. Look, a stalker who's bent on harming or killing a woman would likely choose those places to attack. I mean, where they know their victim is defenseless. You know, my stalker murdered my husband Ben in a gun-free zone where I was made helpless because I obeyed the law and left my gun inside of my vehicle that night. I just don't think that women should be made helpless. Millions of women are stalked and fearful for their life. They feel threatened. And, and so much of this, uh, I would argue, get your reaction, is, is education. I understand what the politicians are doing. They're craving power seekers. But those that unwittingly support out of sort of emotional reasons, support the idea of, yeah, if we just ban these guns or if we just prevent people from getting guns, whether they're law abiding or otherwise, then we'll be safer because I'm afraid of guns, because I don't have a gun, because I have no exposure to guns. And so I just want them to be eliminated, even though that's not realistic. I think evil people will find a way. Look, when the police searched the my stalker's vehicle in the parking lot that night they found two more guns ammunition a baseball bat binoculars gloves rope and a knife Jeez. he came well prepared with lots of different tools to inflict harm what, what do you think about um, these you know one of the other proposals in terms of a policy the gun buyback programs yeah i think these gun buyback programs are ridiculous i mean look <clears throat> so you're going to take a, a bunch of guns away from law-abiding people who own them legally. Is that really going to stop bad people? I mean, people with evil intent, they're going to get guns the same way that, you know, you get illegal drugs. They'll get them on the street. They'll get illegal guns. I mean, look, do guns make it easier for bad people to do bad things? Sure. But you know what? Guns make it a lot easier for good people to defend themselves. As we saw with Jack Wilson in White Settlement, Texas, the other week. Absolutely. She is Nikki Gozer, executive director of the Crime Prevention Research Center, author of the book Stalked and Defenseless, How Gun Control Helped My Stalker Murder My Husband in Front of Me. Uh, Nikki, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I just want to connect some dots here from the uh, interviews, the undercover interviews Project Veritas did of this Kyle Jurek, Bernie Sanders staffer in Iowa, talking about the glorious gulags to come if uh, Comrade Bernie is installed in the White House. We'll play a clip of that, but also connecting it to uh, Professor Salemi from NYU we spoke with in the last hour about the uh, censorious nature of culture on college campuses and in the arts and in entertainment, generally speaking. Uh, and then a, a sort of as a prelude to our conversation with Sorab Amari after the break, where we'll tackle the uh, bigotry that's directed at people of the Catholic faith in this country. Uh, we'll s- focus on that. Certainly they're not alone. Evangelical Christians as well. It's acceptable. Um, so going back to the Bernie bro in Iowa, who's got grand designs for uh, Trump voters. What would you kind of consider yourself? Like where on that spectrum? I'm an anarcho-communist. So, mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm as far to the left as you can possibly get. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, there's... That I know of one, two, three, one, two, three, four, four of the organizers in this office are, are you know, leftists. So Justin, me, Derek, you know, uh, Jessica uh, are all definitely further left than the president. If you can't uh, handle me at my most communist, then you don't deserve me at my most anarchist. There's a lot of me's in the Bernie campaign. And like, that was the intention. Of, of gulags, right? It's like not only to like limp to like remove the like people that were like insidious to the state from the state. Like, hey, you guys are all causing problems. You're like working against the revolution. We're just going to remove you and put you in Siberia, where you learn the value of like being a comrade. Like, I mean, and that's like you know that's what it has to be. Like, our prisons in the United States right now are far worse far worse than anything that they experienced in fucking gulag. Like, people get raped. People fucking work 12 hours a day. People have to go fight fires in California for a dollar. You know what I mean? Like, that That's super Yeah. Um, Soviet Union didn't do that Forget the uh, astounding ignorance of comparing U.S. prisons to Soviet gulags. And uh, just focus on the gulags for a minute and what he said about, uh, hey, you know, you've got to learn the values of the state. Uh, get with it, comrade. Got to learn to be a comrade. Uh, you know, like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, if you're not familiar with uh, Mr. Solzhenitsyn, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970, you should get familiar and you should make sure everybody in your social circle is familiar, particularly given what we're hearing from the left And all that is, that Bernie bros expression is uh, giving form to the attitude of so many ignoramuses running around as staffers for, you know, spin the wheel and pick the Democrat socialist of your choosing. I'm going to go back to an address that Solson Heenson gave. Gulag Archipelago is his magnum opus, right? Uh, This is an address he gave in 1983 on the occasion of being awarded the Templeton Prize. By the way, just as a quick aside, an interesting factoid is that when Solzhenitsyn was released from the Soviet gulag, uh, he was expelled uh, some two decades later in 1974 from his country because of the popularity of his writings and the 
you know, subversive nature of them against the totalitarian communists. I repeat myself. Where did he spend his exile? State of Vermont. <laughs> Bernie was there. Uh, apparently, they uh, were not in the same neighborhood. They certainly weren't intellectually uh, before uh, Sultan Heatson returned to the Soviet Union in 1991 after the wall fell. Uh, this is what he had to say in 1983, so 35 years ago. See how true it rings for you today. If I were asked to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, man and men have forgotten God. That's why all of this happened. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. The revolution that uh, that dopey, thuggish Bernie Staffer speaks of so glowingly that swallowed up some 60 million of our people he talked about. He goes on, only the loss of that higher intuition that comes from God could have allowed the West to accept calmly after World War I the protracted agony of Russia as she was being torn apart by a band of cannibals, or to accept after World War II the similar dismemberment of Eastern Europe. The West did not perceive that this was, in fact, the beginning of a lengthy process that spells disaster for the whole world. Indeed, the West has done a good deal to help that process along. Only once in this century did the West gather strength for the battle against Hitler. But the fruits of that victory have long since been lost. Faced with cannibalism, our godless age has discovered the perfect anesthetic trade, such as the pinnacle of contemporary wisdom. Uh, Sultan Heenson talking about uh, the idea if we are economic partners, then we will uh, share the same values as it pertains to our treatment of people vis-a-vis the state. And uh, yes, a trade is a good thing, but it's not the only thing. It is not comprehensive, as we see in real time, against the backdrop of the phase one deal that Trump signed uh, yesterday, announced yesterday with the Chinese. Uh, would you say the Chinese share the same values as Americans as they are sending weaker Muslim minorities into concentration camps and harvesting their organs, the persecution of Chinese communists, uh, the persecution of Falun Gong at the hands of Chinese communists. This is the insight that Sultan Heenson had. It, it cannot just be economic man and woman. It's not enough. He talked about uh, the tens of millions of laymen uh, uh, for whom access to the church was blocked during uh, you know, the Soviet era. And yet he writes something they did not expect, the, communis, the, the communists in the Soviet Union, that in a land where churches have been leveled, where a triumphant atheism has rampaged uncontrolled for two-thirds of a century, where the clergy is utterly humiliated and deprived of all, evident, all uh, independence, where what remains of the church as an institution is tolerated only for the sake of propaganda directed at the West, where, every, where even today people are sent to the labor camps for their faith, and where within the camps themselves, those who gather to pray at Easter are clapped in punishment cells. They could not suppose, the communists could not suppose, that beneath this communist steamroller, the Christian tradition would survive in Russia. And it did. The West has yet to experience a communist invasion. Religion here remains free. But the West's own historical evolution has been such that today it is, too, experiencing a dying 
a drying up of religious consciousness. He talks about the burning hatred that is being fostered across racial lines and class lines. This is 1983. The deliberately nurtured hatred then spreads to all that is alive, to life itself, to the world with its color, sound, shapes, to the human body. The embittered art of the 20th century is perishing as a result of this ugly hate, for art is fruitless without love. Here again, we witness the single outcome of a worldwide process, with East and West yielding the same results, and once again for the same reason. Men have forgotten God. This is The Dan Prof Show. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. And the only uh, conspiracy theories targeting people of a particular faith that are acceptable these days seem to be those targeting Catholics. You'll recall uh, about two and a half years ago when Amy Coney Barrett was before the Senate for her confirmation hearing to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. This exchange with Senator Dianne Feinstein. When you read your speeches, um, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern when you come to big issues that large numbers of people have fought for for years in this country. It's a concern to have a uh, devout Catholic on uh, appellate court. Imagine what the concern will be if and when Amy Coney Baird is nominated to the high court. Well, uh, we find out that uh, there's another conspiracy afoot, and Bill Barr's at the center of it. Attorney General Bill Barr is uh, ripped from the pages of a Dan Brown novel to... uh, Uh, to hear the New Yorker tell it, a uh, profile piece on Bill Barr that uh, focuses on his Catholic faith and uh, his uh, uh, connection to Opus Dei within the Catholic faith. Uh, And an individual who wrote on this topic, uh, addressing this conspiracy theory surrounding this Republican politician, Will Barr, is Sorab Amari. He is the op-ed editor of the New York Post. He's a contributing editor of the Catholic Herald. And so, her, uh, Arma, excuse me, so Rob Amari, thank you so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And so, um, yeah, your uh, your takeaway, not just on on uh, Bill Barr and this New Yorker profile piece, where there's a number of leftists who express horror at the uh, notion that Bill Barr is Catholic, but uh, then also in the context going back a couple of years to the DiFi Amy Coney Barrett exchange and what that says about uh, what groups it's acceptable to spin conspiracy theories about. I'm glad you mentioned that other example of um, uh, now Judge Barrett at the time she was up for confirmation. Um, you're right. I mean, it seems like uh, Senator Feinstein's objection to her was the fact that, as she put it, the dogma lives loudly within you, which is, um, for many Catholics, it's the greatest compliment. <laughs> yeah, that's right. To say that about you. Um, but, you know, I think there is, there is, look, there's an old strain of anti-Catholicism in this country, and it, it didn't necessarily used to be uh, something that came from the left alone. But now especially, I think uh, it's become acceptable uh, to 
talk about uh, Catholicism. It's, uh, you know, it's sexual teachings, it's moral teachings, um, and more generally, it's presence in public life the way that you would never dare to do about, let's say, Jewish Americans or, uh, you know, uh, other groups, any other group. You would never talk this way. Um, and rightly so, we shouldn't. Um, but this kind of air of conspiratorial activity by Catholics who are really, you know, beholden to Roman teachings and aren't maybe quite good citizens as a result of that or can't be trusted with public office is really nasty. And increasingly, almost exclusively now, you see it from the left. Well, yeah, you had another uh, group that uh, the government had to get after, too, back in the previous administration. You know, those nasty little sisters of the poor uh, who uh, spend their lives serving senior citizens, uh, poor senior citizens, mainly. Uh, and, uh, they, you know, they have to comply with the Obamacare contraception mandate or be torn asunder. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and look, I mean, you know, as a Roman Catholic, I have to say, I mean, we, you know, this is something that Catholics should own in the sense that, you know, uh, uh, we, you know, we will, for example, you see the nuns who don't have great resources and really should be spending their resources on their mission, which is helping uh, elderly people. But if it came to it, um, the, the sense of being bound um, by the catechism, by our devotion to Jesus Christ and his church is so strong that we will fight a mandate to um, uh, you know, force Catholic institutions to pay for abortifacients or pay for contraceptives. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and that's perfectly American. And the fact that the, the imposition on Catholic institutions like Little Sisters of the Poor is, is what's un-American. That is not the traditions of this country. I want to uh, pick up our discussion on religious liberty as well as um, the other First Amendment protections, including speech, uh, right after this break. We're talking to Soab Amari. He is the op-ed editor of the New York Post, contributing editor of the Catholic Herald. We'll be back with more of Mr. Amari right after this. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Sorab Amari. He is the op editor of the New York Post, contributing editor of the Catholic Herald. And we were talking about uh, this New Yorker profile piece on Bill Barr, uh, which was used as a vehicle for a lot of people to essentially express anti-Catholic viewpoints and spin Catholic conspiracy theories, uh, much like uh, the opinion that DiFi expressed to Amy Coney Barrett now on the Seventh Circuit back at her confirmation hearing a couple of years ago. And uh, the larger issue, which has become a real cultural touchstone, uh, so, Rob, uh, is religious liberty and people being allowed to practice their faith so long as it doesn't impinge on somebody else being allowed to do the same. And despite uh, Supreme Court cases, uh, rule uh, that have uh, come down decidedly in the favor of uh, our, our, our freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, 
for most <clears throat> most uh, pronouncedly maybe the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case in Colorado, Jack Phillips, you still have this assault on religious liberty going on. It was important in 2016 as a frame for the presidential race. Do you see it as just as important in 2020, despite some of these uh, court decisions? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, it's, such a, it's such a fundamental issue. I mean, I'll, I'll just mention something from the New Yorker article about Barr right near the top of the piece. It says that um, in a recent speech, Attorney General Bill Barr, I'm paraphrasing here, expressed the contentious view that the founders believed that religion is essential, you know, to a to a republic like ours, a democratic republic like ours. Now, that framing already shows you, and first of all, it's factually wrong. Right. The idea that um, you may not agree with it, but it's a matter of historical fact of records from even someone like Jefferson, who is the least kind of predisposed towards traditional religion, who says that. You know, it's better for people to believe for, for, for a government like ours to work, right? It's good for people to be bound by strong moral uh, traditions. But that framing already shows you that Barr is framed as suspect because he sees a strong role for a public moral culture supplied by a religion like Catholicism. That's already, they think, a suspect. And so they see themselves as really on a mission to try to exclude it from from the public square. This is the thrust of liberalism now. But, you know, unless unless your brand of religion is the kind that just happens to line up perfectly with liberal doctrine, then it's okay. And it's private, you can just, you know. <laughs> but if you but if you uh, think that it should inform how we think about the, dig- the inherent dignity of life, of government's role, and so on and so forth, then it's suspect and, and you're you're framed the way this article framed Bill Barr as like an agent of Catholicism and an agent of a cult. Yeah, you're supposed to use your religion the way that Nancy Pelosi or Pete Buttigieg does, which is sort of a as a talking point, as a credentializer, you know, but I, 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 I'm, I, I like some things. I don't like others. Sometimes I'm Catholic. Sometimes I'm not. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can misinterpret scripture the way that Mayor Pete does in a serial fashion to uh, comport scripture to my political views. I mean, it's 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 just something to make a pay on to people to say, hey, I'm not opposed to people of faith so long as you shape shift your faith to fit this political agenda. Yes, and so in the case of Bill Barr, um, one of the most outrageous facts about this is I think if you focus on a group like Otis State, which I, to be clear, I'm not a member. And nor is Bill Barr, but they try to associate it with him because he sat on the board of a bookstore in Washington that is run by by uh, Opus Dei, where people who live in Washington can go and you know buy books and occasionally hear the mass or give confessions. That's it. Mm-hmm. He sat on the board, and so therefore they they claim that this means he's an agent of Opus Dei, and they imply it. Um, and I think especially with Opus Dei. Uh, you know, uh, because it has a Latin-sounding name and so forth, there's a tendency where you can channel all the sort of oldest anti-Catholic stereotypes and repeat them, launder them, because you don't say it about the Catholic Church. You say it about a group whose founder is a saint in the Catholic Church, and really all it's about is to try to live in holiness in your daily life, whatever you may be doing. Uh, you might be a teacher, you might be a stay-at-home mom. Whatever you are, Opus Dei says you can try to reach for holiness in your daily life. 
That's what it's about. And and, if you've ever gone to open state meetings, yeah. you know, there's no talk of politics. There's never any, like, you know, you should vote for the Republican Party or anything like that. It's about, you know, be a good husband, pray, you know, don't forget to examine your conscience before you're going to bed. That's it. But they can demonize it as this sort of nefarious foreign Latin thing. <laughs> Yeah, and of course, uh, what the only thing uh, most people know about Opus Dei is whatever they took away from uh, the the Tom Hanks and Dan Brown novels. Yeah, exactly, and <laughs> playing out one of those ridiculous Dan Brown novels, poorly written on top of it. Now, the other thing that's interesting, just going back to Barr's speech at Notre Dame, which is part of the framing of this profile piece, uh, is you know the arguments he was advancing really arguments from uh, democracy in america de tocqueville so now i guess we're going to de tocqueville which was you know one of the seminal books in terms of understanding america the outsider's perspective uh now apparently that that's going to have to be taken out of the classroom whether at the k through 12 or at the collegiate level too because bill barr is cited and so now that that's poison as well right or what are they going what are they going to have to do with um with John Adams, um, who famously said, uh, you know, this constitution of ours only works for moral and religious people. Uh, and with another kind of people, it, it actually would be a disaster. Um, you know, there are these uncomfortable bits of, um, of history and of our traditions, uh, both the American tradition and then the sort of wider Western tradition that um, increasingly are all suspect. Um, and so, you know, I think, look, how will this play out is you, you have a liberal elite that's increasingly uncomfortable with both the common sense of lots of voters, but also alienated from the structures and institutions and history that we've all inherited together. Um, and how they relate to it is, is only in the sense of it's all bad and it all has to be suppressed. Um and and but that but they have tremendous power to try to suppress that they have they wield tremendous cultural power, um, so it's not something that we can take lightly. He is Sorab Amari. He is the op-ed editor of the New York Post and a contributing editor for the Catholic Herald. Sorab, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This is sort of a fun topic and a fun study that was done by uh, Amerisleep survey of 2,000 people about their anxiety-fueled nightmares by uh, order of popularity, what are your most frequent nightmares? Right. Many respondents' uh, nightmares were shrouded in fear, no surprise. Uh, the most frequent and per- perhaps the most prosaic, falling, falling down, no, not a Michael Douglas reference. Uh, two-thirds of respondents said falling, uh, being chased, death, feeling lost, feeling trapped, being attacked, missing an important event, uh, the proverbial I, I uh, 
dreamt I missed that final exam. I forgot to turn in that paper. Waking up late. Sex. If you're if sex is a nightmare, then you perhaps you're not doing it right or thinking about it, conceiving of it properly. Uh, also, I like this seeing dead people, seeing unknown dead people. OK, Haley, Joel Osmond being naked in public. Right. That uh, that nightmare about, uh, you know, showing up to a class and forgetting to put your clothes on or some such thing. Two thousand people, their anxiety fuel desires. Uh, so, again, the top being chased, death, feeling lost, feeling trapped, being attacked. Um, nowhere in here do I see President, uh, what, spin the wheel, President uh, Bernie Sanders, President uh, Elizabeth Warren, President Pete Buttigieg, President Amy Klobuchar, President Michael Bloomberg, President Tom Steyer, Joe Biden, on and on and on. There's a lot of uh, nightmares we're living through, too. I don't know. I, the nightmares seem to me that would have to be um, pretty jarring these days to uh, to be more nightmarish, if you will, more frightening, more anxiety inducing than what we actually see, generally speaking, in our, cult, in our, cult, in our culture, for example. Um, perhaps one nightmare would be, uh, I don't know, uh, seeing your kid playing with a girl doll that has a penis. <laughs> Did you see this? The Russians again. Uh, Planet of Toys in uh, Siberia uh, is reportedly featuring the first transgender children's doll in the world. The doll uh, with a little dress on and pigtails. You, I mean, it's just, just sort of, ugh, God, nightmarish. Um, rather than uh, going the direction of Mattel back in the day and having Barbie and Ken be anatomically not correct, they've uh, put uh, uh, Michelangelo's. Uh, David's uh, tackle on this little doll and uh, the uh, reaction is mixed and it's sort of a sad commentary that it's even mixed. Yeah. Um, maybe they're going to have uh, sort of an operation set or a Mr. Potato head set that goes with it. This is the modern Mr. Potato in the 21st century. It's all genitalia related. Good grief. What a nightmare. This is the Dan Prop Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.